Babies and children aren't immune to pressure injuries. Malika Z-Flow Fluidized Positioners put your youngest patients in the best position. Z-Flow is designed for conformational positioning across the continuum of care, from developmental growth in NICU patients to pediatric PI management. Z-Flow, positioners that conform and mold to every body, big or small. For more information, visit monlika.us. That's M-O-L-N-L-Y-C-K-E dot U-S. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elizabeth Mack. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Michael Fundora, and we will be talking about the Association of Workload and Outcomes in the Pediatric Cardiac ICU, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. To access the full article, visit pccmjournal.org. Dr. Fundora is a physician in the Division of Cardiology, the Department of Pediatrics, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Fundora. Can you tell us a little bit about your hypothesis and design? Yeah, so we really wanted to set out to understand the interaction of workload on patient outcomes and frontline provider behavior as measured by orders. So really, when it comes down to it, workload is really difficult to isolate. And so when we were thinking through how to design this project, we decided to look at bed occupancy as kind of a surrogate measure of workload. So we pulled all data on patients during a two-year period. This was obviously a retrospective study. So we looked at uh, January 2018 to December 2019. And then we also pulled all ICU orders placed on all the patients admitted to the unit. We also looked at who wrote those orders, their level of experience, and we cross-referenced everyone who wrote orders with their shift schedules just to make sure we had the cleanest data possible. Then we created a model and we were able to risk adjust and control for the patient factors. And we controlled for things like the day of the week, time of day, For the model, we took a step further and wanted to make sure that sicker, longer-stay patients weren't confounding our analysis. And so we performed a robustness analysis where we confirmed the effects that we found by trying different things, such as removing outliers. And we then did a cost analysis based on our findings and analyzed the resources that these patients would take up. And that's what we described, especially down towards the discussion part of our paper. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Was there anything in terms of your findings that you were surprised to learn? Yeah. So I think for me, I really didn't expect to see an association between bed occupancy and mortality. You know, I think as as an intensivist, this is really the most frightening scenario. I think that we all really worry about missing something or a patient having a bad outcome when the ICU is busy. I know that For example, I start walking around a lot more. I I start getting a little bit nervous and I try to check up on things as much as possible because I worry that if anyone is distracted, that we might be missing something. And so I was pretty surprised to find that. But, you know, at the same time, I think we showed that this is not just a staffing problem. It's not just really when the staff is stretched thin. I think that when we found that the turnaround time for the labs actually increased when the unit was busy or full, that was actually kind of surprising to me because, you know, in isolation, taking a few extra minutes to really get the lab results back maybe is not a huge deal or maybe it's not clinically significant, but it started making me think of 
the wider environment that the ICU sits in. And, you know, this is the hospital resources. How long does it take to get an x-ray? How long would it take for me to get a CAT scan if there was an emergency? Or what happens to the capacity elsewhere in the hospital? And so when we had that finding that there was a longer turnaround time, it really made me think a little bit deeper about the capacity of the ICU and realize that staff has a certain capacity, but there's also other resources that we need to pay attention to. So I think staffing is a huge problem, you know, don't get me wrong, but I think that we also, if we're going to start thinking about how to tackle busy units that maybe could have negative impacts on patient outcomes, we need to think about staff. We also need to think about all these other resources, lab capacity, x-ray or radiology capacity, and where these other bottlenecks are, which may not be so obvious. Yeah, I think that's really important. And this is something that we often like to maybe not focus on or or put to the side, but anything that you would consider to be your biggest takeaway from the study or anything in particular that you all have changed as a result of your findings? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest takeaway from the study is that, you know, we saw that there was an association between bed occupancy as a surrogate for unit workload and patient outcomes. You know, I think obviously there's limitations to the study. It's a retrospective study. Bed occupancy, I think it's a good surrogate for workload, but it's not perfect. I think really what this has triggered in my mind and many of us is that now we're starting to pay attention to a lot of the components that go into ICU capacity. It's not just the number of beds. It's not just the number of providers, although, like I said, that's a huge part of it. But we need to start thinking about kind of a holistic approach to ICU capacity. This has launched a lot of other studies. You know, I'm working with some other researchers and colleagues on how to measure different aspects of workload in real time in a prospective way. And so I think having the support coming from this study, building the support to do further research like that, I think is going to be crucial to really understanding the problem. And then at the same time, I think that, like I said in the beginning, there's been a lot published on workload in nurses and bedside nurses. There's been a lot of great work in NICU nurses as well. Me personally, I always believe that ICU is a team sport, right? And I think that obviously the nurses are doing a ton of work, but we also need to look at the entire team. We have to look at everything, the bedside nurses, I think even environmental services and how they turn over beds and the support that we get from them. Respiratory therapist has been a huge problem lately, especially with uh, surge in COVID. You know, there's been a lot of travelers and things like that. So there's been a lot of those kinds of challenges out there, but we need to look at them. We need to look at frontline providers. We need to look at how to support our fellows who are in the frontline provider role who don't necessarily want to be intensivists or work in an ICU if they're cardiology fellows, for example. And then, of course, how we can support each other as physicians in the ICU. Great. Thank you so much. I'm curious as to your thoughts on how these data fit in with the classic PEDS cardiac volume outcome relationship studies and where this kind of fits in. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that my experience, I really do think that, especially when it comes to cardiac surgery, that there needs to be a critical threshold of volume. I I think there is a minimal amount that needs to happen in a cardiac ICU really to get to proficiency. I think that applies for 
everything, everybody from really the cardiac surgeons all the way down, you know, the ICU people need to even know how to take care of these patients preoperatively, postoperatively, you know, how to take care of them if they come back for medical admission, kind of across the board. So I think there is a minimum volume that they need to achieve. But I think as far as it goes with our paper, we also need to understand a little bit better that it's not just about a volume outcome kind of equation. I think we need to think more of capacity. And the two terms, capacity and volume, you know, they seem kind of similar, but they're really not. I mean, if you kind of break it down, it's what I'm talking about in the sense that capacity is the amount that you can handle at any time. It's not just volume in terms of taking up beds. Beds is a part of the calculation. It's not just the amount of staffing, but staffing is part of the calculation. It's really that whole holistic approach to thinking about how to manage an ICU. So that's why I think when units, for example, go through bed expansions, for example, administrators and leadership really need to start thinking about all of the other components that go into it. It's not just getting a few extra beds. It's also about making sure that we have enough staff for them, enough bedside staff, respiratory therapists, that we're going to have the clinical support people who work throughout the hospital. The lab is going to be able to support the ICU and radiology and everything else that we need to accomplish in order to care for our patients. So I think that it's really more of we should be looking at this in terms of capacity. And I think that those hospitals that are able to manage the capacity adequately and are able to think in these ways, I think that they are going to have better outcomes because they never really get into that red zone where they're maxed out every patient. They're kind of overwhelmed with the amount of patients that they have, which we showed is associated with bad outcomes. They're always able to kind of stay in that middle zone, which in our paper, we talk about around 80% capacity. If they're able to stay in that kind of sweet spot, then I think that translates into better outcomes for their patients. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And just finally, I'm curious um, as to your thoughts on maybe the current situation where we may be beyond the system's capacity, sort of, you know, looking past the individual institution, but exceeding the capacity of the system and sort of most of us being in the red zone. Any thoughts or advice you have for us there? Yeah, I think the first thing, obviously, is that you need data, and we all need data, right? So it's hard to make any decisions. It's hard to even make the case just based on kind of an anecdotal feeling. I mean, I know we all feel that when our ICU is full or busy, you know, we feel like it's kind of a dangerous situation. But I think that the most important thing is to try to find some of that data to back up your, I guess, your feeling. You know, there are times where we can have a high census in the ICU, but it doesn't really feel like things are out of control. I mean, I think a lot of people also feel that, you know, it only really takes one patient for things to feel completely out of control. So I think that there is definitely a portion of this that we have to think about patient acuity, and that has to be calculated into this as well. I think for those units that always feel like they're in the red zone, I think that looking at the different components of capacity, thinking about beds, thinking about staffing, that is really something that needs to be taken into account. And obviously, we've been talking a lot about kind of the red zone for patients, but we also need to think a little bit about the red zone for ourselves, too. I mean, we can't go through weeks of service at a time and be completely spent by the end of it. 
that's just not really sustainable. So we have to think about safety for ourselves too. So I would say that if there's a unit that feels like they're in the red zone all the time, I think bringing those concerns but also maybe some solutions to the leadership and being very clear, showing that there is a cost to everything that we do. I think that would at least help and maybe go some ways to alleviating some of those situations. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share or just leave us with some parting words? Yeah, I I mean, I want to definitely thank all my co-authors. You know, I mentioned many of them. You know, Dr. Maley has also been a great mentor to me, and I really appreciate the interest that everyone's had in this paper. You know, we hope to continue researching in this area and really trying to clarify a lot of these things that we've been talking about today in terms of capacity and, you know, when are units safe or not safe for patients. But I think that especially now, you know, everyone has been talking about surges and uh, children's hospitals and things like that, that we should try our best to pay attention to a lot of these issues in order to do our best to take care of our patients and have the best outcomes as possible. Well, and I just wanted to share our huge amount of gratitude to you and your colleagues and co-authors who did this work. Again, incredibly relevant to what's going on right now in our world and a really thoughtful contribution to the literature around both patient and clinician wellness. So thank you so much. And this concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Elizabeth Mack. Babies and children aren't immune to pressure injuries. Mudlika Z-Flow Fluidized Positioners put your youngest patients in the best position. Z-Flow is designed for conformational positioning across the continuum of care, from developmental growth in NICU patients to pediatric PI management. Z-Flow, positioners that conform and mold to every body, big or small. For more information, visit monlika.us. That's M-O-L-N-L-Y-C-K-E dot U-S. Elizabeth H. Mack, MD, MS, FCCM, is a professor of pediatrics and chief of pediatric critical care at Medical University of South Carolina Children's Health in Charleston, South Carolina, USA. Dr. Mack received her Bachelor of Science and Medical degrees from the University of South Carolina. She completed her residency at University of South Carolina, Palmetto Health, and her fellowship at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. She also completed a Master of Science degree with a focus on epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Cincinnati. Currently, she serves as chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics section of critical care and is past chair of SCCM's current concepts in pediatric critical care course. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.